Hello and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevenson Harwood employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Natalie Edwards and I'm an associate in the team. I have with me Harvest Garney, an employment partner in the Stevenson Harwood employment group. Today we're going to do a roundup of the latest key employment cases and cover any practical takeaway points. In this podcast, we're going to look at five recent cases. The first is the Supreme Court decision in Tyne Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust versus Hayward, which looks at the issue of when notice of termination of employment takes effect. The second case is an Employment Appeal Tribunal decision, Ali versus Capita Customer Management Limited, which looks at whether the failure to enhance shared parental pay in line with an existing enhanced maternity pay was sex discrimination. The third case is a Court of Appeal decision, Cow versus Leeds Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust, which looks at constructive dismissal and the impact on bringing a claim after an employee affirms the employment contract following conduct by the employer which amounts to a breach of trust and confidence. The fourth case is another Court of Appeal decision, the case of Abrahall versus Nottingham City Council, which looked at whether employees who continue to work after a pay freeze were deemed to have accepted this as a variation to their contract. And the final case we will look at is the Supreme Court case of Morris Garner and another versus One Step, which looks at the recovery of negotiating damages in the context of breach of contract and particularly restrictive covenants. So let's start with the first case, Tyne Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust versus Hayward, a Supreme Court decision regarding when notice of dismissal of employment took effect. You would think this would be a straightforward matter, but apparently not. It was one of particular importance in this case because if Mrs Hayward's employment had terminated before her 50th birthday, she would not have been entitled to a significantly higher pension. Parvis, what is the established position on when notice of termination of employment takes effect? So I think the starting point here is to remind our listeners that the principles for determining termination of employment for statutory purposes have been different to the principles determination date of the employment contract. It has previously been established by the Supreme Court that for the purposes of an unfair dismissal claim, where dismissal was communicated by letter, the effective date of termination, or the EDT as it's known, was the date on which the employee read the letter. Now in this case, the trust argued that the position for the purposes of giving notice to terminate the contract was different. They argued that notice took effect when the letter was delivered to the relevant address. And what did the Supreme Court rule on this point? By a majority, the Supreme Court held that there was no clear and universal principle under common law that service of notice occurs when notice is delivered to the recipient's address. They found that the same principles apply to statutory and contractual termination. Therefore, unless an employment contract provides otherwise, a term will be implied into the contract that notice of termination takes effect from when the employee opens and reads the notice or has had reasonable opportunity to do so. And what does that mean in practice for employers? The Supreme Court has given a clear steer that careful drafting can provide greater certainty on when notice of termination takes effect. So, as I highlighted at our annual employment seminar, employers should review their employment contracts to ensure that they include provisions setting out when notice is deemed to be received and take effect. So I would expect to see clear notice provisions in the contract setting out when notice is deemed to have been given. If this is not in your contract, I would suggest inserting these to mitigate the risk of a Hayward-type situation arising. Also, as a matter of best practice, it is better to communicate the decision to terminate in person. You can then follow up in writing to confirm what you've communicated. Thanks, Parvis. Moving on to Ali versus Capita Customer Management Limited, 
This case considered whether a failure to enhance shared parental leave pay in line with enhanced maternity pay amounts to direct sex discrimination. What did the Employment Appeal Tribunal have to say about this? The EAT considered whether paying enhanced maternity pay for 14 weeks of maternity leave but only paying statutory pay for shared parental leave was discriminatory. Now, Mr Ali accepted that the two weeks compulsory maternity leave immediately after birth was related to recovery from childbirth, but that the 12 weeks enhanced maternity pay after that concerned caring for the child and that men were not afforded the same benefit under the shared parental leave regime, which he believed amounted to direct sex discrimination. Now, the EAT overturned the tribunal's decision and held that the purpose of maternity leave is to protect the health and well-being of a woman during pregnancy, in childbirth and following childbirth, unlike shared parental leave and pay which concerns caring for a child. Therefore, the circumstances of a father are not comparable. In addition, the EAT found that shared parental leave is given on the same terms for both men and women who are using their entitlement. Capita was therefore not discriminating against men by having a policy of enhanced maternity pay only. And what does that mean for employers? Does that mean there's no need to enhance shared parental pay? Yes, that's right. So for now, the position is that it does not amount to unlawful discrimination for an employer to pay enhanced maternity pay, but not shared parental pay. However, given the little to uptake on shared parental leave, there does appear to be a resource being put into promoting this entitlement. So this is one to watch. Also, I would not rule out further cases on and whether this obviously could go up to the Court of Appeal and potentially the Supreme Court in future. But for now, I would sit in comfort that it would not be unlawful discrimination. Thanks, Parvis. Let's turn to Cow versus Leeds Teaching Hospital NHS Trust. This was a Court of Appeal decision regarding whether an employee claiming constructive dismissal can rely on a series of acts by an employer, including a previously affirmed repudiatory breach. That's right, Natalie. So the tribunal in this case struck out Mrs. Cow's constructive unfair dismissal claim when she resigned after her appeal against her disciplinary warning was rejected. Now, this case concerned an altercation between Mrs. Cow and her colleague. So Mrs. Cow had argued that the employer's initiation, handling and outcome of its disciplinary process was unreasonable and amounted to a breach of trust and confidence. She alleged that the rejection of her appeal was the last straw in a series of acts which, taken together, amounted to a breach of the implied term of trust and confidence. The trust had argued that Mrs. Cow had affirmed any alleged breach by having remained in employment for many months after the disciplinary proceedings initially commenced. Now, the ET struck out the claim on the basis that was no reasonable prospect of success and of successfully relying on the last straw based on the disciplinary process. The EAT agreed with that position. And what happened in the Court of Appeal? So the Court of Appeal upheld the EAT's decision and agreed with the tribunal in that it was right to strike out this claim. But this case is useful in that the Court of Appeal looked at the last straw doctrine and gave guidance on the key points to consider in deciding whether an employee was constructively dismissed. Now the Court looked at the issue of where an employee soldiers on when the employer's behaviour crosses the threshold of amounting to a reputatory breach of contract. So in such circumstances, the employee will have affirmed the contract. Ordinarily, this means that the employee loses the right to resign in relation to that breach and claim constructive unfair dismissal. But the Court of Appeal held that in a case such as this, where there had been a series of alleged acts or what we call a cumulative breach, further contributory acts can effectively revive the employee's right to rely upon the whole series of acts, despite the employee having affirmed the contract earlier. So an employee in such cases is able to resign and claim constructive dismissal so long as the resignation is in response to an act which is capable of contributing to the cumulative breach. So to hold otherwise would mean that by failing to object at the first moment that the conduct reached the threshold for breaching the term of trust and confidence, the employee lost the right ever to rely on all conduct up to that point. 
And such a situation would be both unfair and unworkable. And what's the key takeaway point here for employers? This case is a reminder that employees could later rely on historical matters or issues as contributing to a cumulative breach of trust and confidence. So this can be despite the employer thinking they have dealt with that matter, that historical complaint or grievance, or the employee had completely forgotten about it. Okay, thanks Parvis. Let's look next to Abra Hall versus Nottingham City Council. Here, the council implemented a single pay scale system to manage pay rises. Subsequently, the council imposed a two-year pay freeze, suspending the usual pay progression through pay scales. The trade union threatened industrial action in response, but the council asserted that the alternative would be mass redundancies. The freeze was therefore implemented in April 2011. The union did not have enough support to justify a formal ballot on industrial action, although there was support from those who turned out. The union therefore made its view of the pay freeze known in April and May, but raised no formal dispute and no employee raised a grievance. When the council imposed a similar freeze two years later, in April 2013, several hundred affected employees brought claims for unlawful deductions on the basis that they had a contractual entitlement to pay progression. Parvis, what did the Court of Appeal rule on this? So, at the start, the Employment Tribunal dismissed the claims on the basis that there was no contractual right to pay progression. The employment judge did, however, comment that the employees had not agreed to a variation in their terms and conditions of employment by continuing to work after the pay freeze had been imposed and thereby accepting a suspension of their pay progression. The AT agreed with the tribunal, but this was appealed and it went to the Court of Appeal. Now, the Court of Appeal allowed this appeal and held that all of the employees were contractually entitled to pay progression. They found that the employees had not implicitly agreed to a variation of their contract. It was their view that continuing to work following a contractual reduction in pay can constitute acceptance, but this will not always be the case. It is very much fact-specific. And what does this mean for employers? In what circumstances will an employee be found to have implicitly agreed to a variation of contract? So the Court of Appeal identified a number of relevant principles to address this. Now, the first one, point number one, is that where the proposed variation is wholly disadvantageous to the employees acceptance is less likely to be inferred. Number two, an employer's reliance on inferred acceptance will be weakened where the employer does not put the variation to the employees as something on which their acceptance is required. And number three, protest or objection at the collective level, as there was in this case at the outset, may be sufficient to defeat any inference of acceptance. Thanks, Parvis. Finally, shall we consider Morris Garner and another versus one step? This is a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court where One Step had entered into an agreement with the defendants containing a non-compete and non-solicitation restrictive covenant valid for three years following the sale of the defendants' shares to One Step. The defendants breached these covenants and One Step suffered loss that was very difficult to quantify. The Court of Appeal granted One Step the option of recovering what is called negotiating damages and rejected the notion that such damages should be restricted to exceptional circumstances. And what are negotiating damages? The primary remedy for breach of contract is damages reflecting the loss suffered by the innocent party. Now, negotiating damages, or root and park damages as it is also known, are the price to be paid for releasing a defendant from its obligations, if this could have hypothetically have been agreed between the parties. They are a useful remedy where it is difficult to demonstrate financial loss. And what did the Supreme Court have to say? And is there a case for claiming negotiating damages for breach of restrictive covenants? The Supreme Court has clarified the approach uh, in this area to awards of damages against parties who deliberately breach contractual obligations, including, of course, restrictive covenants, but where it is difficult to calculate the losses caused as a result. They made it clear that negotiating damages for breach of contract should be reserved for exceptional circumstances. So where a complainant's interest in the performance of a contract is purely economic, 
but no economic loss resulting from the breach can be established, the normal inference will be that the complainant has not suffered loss and cannot be awarded more than nominal damages. So in practice, this means that it is very unlikely that negotiating damages will be awarded for breach of restrictive covenants. However, the Supreme Court has left the door open to claim negotiating damages, but where there is a breach which results in the loss of a valuable asset created or protected by the right which was infringed. So for example, breach of confidentiality where a party uses confidential information to its advantage. In such cases, the claimant could recover the economic value of the right which has been breached, which is considered as an asset. But in short, it does make it very hard to claim negotiating damages and it is unlikely that employers will be faced in a position where this remedy would be open to them. Thanks, Parvis, and thanks for listening. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. <laughs>